says on him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us what a great statement of faith do you love to worship the Lord I mean, he has created us for this he has created us for this. that's why you exist that's why I exist A pastor friend of mine was telling me the story about a friend of his who is also a pastor and, and he had this family and they had a member in their family that was like sick or whatever and so they wanted a visit from the pastor and so the pastor stopped by their house to visit them and so they're all in the living room around the coffee table you know talking with the pastor type deal and so he says he says I don't know what happened but he says I guess the pastor got to the point I mean or, or the husband of the family got to the point that he wanted to impress the pastor so he turned to his his son and he said son why don't you go get dad's favorite book and bring it back to him? So his son ran away and grabbed, rummaged through some stuff, came back and brought him the Cabela's catalog. <laughs> you know, and where we want to get to, to the place in our life is this, is to where our favorite book is the Bible. To where we get to the place in our life to where the Bible is not only our favorite book, but it just, it just kind of stays our favorite book. Now listen, I appreciate all the different forms of media now, you can get the Bible on your Blackberry, you can get the Bible on a cell phone, a PDA, you can get the, black, uh, the, the Bible on, on MP3 players and DVDs and the computer and, and Kindles and all this other stuff. Well, I'm just telling you, maybe I am just old school, but there is nothing like just grabbing a Bible and just reading it to where you can mark in it where you can make notes in it, you can underline so that when you, God has taught you some things or whatever you've learned, that you can go back and you can find it. You know, this last week I, from my library, I went and grabbed a bunch of Bibles that, that I've had from different seasons of my life. And, and just thumbing through it, I was able to see some passages that I'd underlined, some comments, and I was, I was able to remember pretty quickly some of the things that God had taught me, some of the things that, that, that God has shown me, and I have this fear that we're developing a very bad habit. And that is we're getting farther and farther away from God's Word, and we don't even bring God's Word to church anymore. And I, I know when we started out in 1995, we kind of encouraged people. They, we didn't really, you know, we provided notes in, in the bulletin and on the screen, and we'll still do that. But my concern is is that we're developing just a bad habit to where we no longer honor God's Word or God's Word no longer means to us boy what it once did. I mean, What would happen in a church if a church fell so in love with God's Word that they not only brought it to church but they read from His, his Word daily the encouragement that it'd bring to others, but the encouragement that it would, it would bring to you. And as a pastor, I get questions, probably one of the most, number one questions I get is, hey, if I buy a Bible, what kind of Bible would I buy? And just let me, just let me give you some guidance here, because when you, when you look at Scripture, you find that in this book, there are 66 books. In the Bible, there's 66 books written by 40 different, approximately 40 different writers. And the reason that we say approximately is because there's some discussion on who wrote how many books of the Bible. But it's 66 books, approximately 40 different writers, but guess what? One author. 
and is God. And this is his autobiography written directly to you, written directly to me. Through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit inspired men and breathed through them what Scripture says and gave them the words. Now, in the midst of the, of the Lord's Prayer, you know, the, the prayer that Jesus prayed, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, in the middle of it, Jesus just prays this powerful sentence, and he says, Give us this day our daily bread. Now, daily bread, does that refer to provisions? Absolutely. Is that all it refers to? No. You go through Scripture and you'll see that, yeah, bread means daily bread. And I understand the cultural stuff that was going on. They worked for a day's wage at the end of the day. They were paid and all that other stuff. But you can also go through Scripture and you find whenever God's Word referred to bread, it was His book. Could, God, could Jesus possibly been trying to communicate to us? Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, Give me this day a daily word from you that speaks into my life. God, I need like a daily word. There are so many Christians that God is meeting their provisions, God is meeting their needs, and they are spiritually malnourished because they don't have a, a daily... What, what was your daily word from God today? You should be able to tell me that. Because Scripture teaches that God wants to speak directly. Man, He wants to speak directly into your life. And the way that He does that is through His Word. There are some people that have had Bibles in their homes all of their life. In some countries, most countries, that's illegal. They'd be put to death. And they have had Bibles in their homes all of their life, and they have never opened it up, read it for themselves, tried to find out who God was and what he was wanting to do in their life and how they should respond to a holy and a righteous God. Through this last week, through my life journaling, I life journal, and, and uh, it was just a huge day for me when uh, Mark chapter 4, verse 20, it said, but those that, that were sown on the good soil are the ones, talking about heart, people, are the ones who hear the word of God, accept it, and bear fruit 30 and 60 and 100 fold. And that was just a huge day for me that, that, that God wants us not only to hear his word, but to accept his word, be willing to apply it to our life. When we hear his word, we apply it to our life, we apply it to our relationships, we apply it to our situations in our life, that Jesus says... There's benefit, 30, 60, 100-fold. See, life journaling and reading God's Scripture isn't all bad. I mean, it's not depressing. There's a lot of times God wants to speak encouragement into your life. I mean, the next day, uh, Mark 6, 31, Jesus was talking. He says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. God spoke into my life, type A, driven personality. They said, Charlie, even Jesus needed to rest. Even Jesus needed leisure time. 
Even Jesus understood that he had to go away to a desolate place, a place without people, and just refocus and recharge. And guess what? When you do that, you shouldn't feel guilty. Because if you're a type A personality, if you're driven, you know this. When you rest, when you, when you have leisure time, you carry guilt because you're thinking of all that you could be doing if you weren't having fun. You're not really having fun because of the guilt. It was just huge in my life about, Charlie, I've created you to have balance. I've created you to have leisure. I've created you to have, have rest. And what would happen? What would happen if we became people of the book and we honored God's word and we loved God's word and we, we wrote it and made note, notes in it? We were willing to just bring it to church and just, just ask God to speak to us through his word. And, and, and so here's the offer I'm willing to make you. If you don't have a Bible, after this service, go to the Welcome Center, give, them, give us your contact information, we'll buy one from you, a nice one. And it'll be our gift to you. If you have a Bible, and you're not reading it, my encouragement to you, be to start reading this word, and, and here's what, I'll give you a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you'll take his, his word, if you'll read it daily for 30 days, whether you do life journaling or whatever, apply it to your life, at the end of 30 days, if you're not fully satisfied, you come and find me and I will personally refund your money. You can keep your Bible, but I'll personally refund your money. Now, there's two types of Bibles. There's two translations, and yeah, I know there's a bunch of different translations, but basically, just so we all understand each other, there's two different types of translations. There's one type that's called the exact equivalency translation. In other words, it's word for word. It's word for word from the Old Testament Hebrew. It's word for word from the New Testament Greek. It is an exact equivalency. They went back to the original language. Listen, the grammar can be poor. They can break rules of grammar. It may, not be, it may not always flow. It may not be always easily read. The, some Bibles that would fall into that, the New King James Version uh, would fall into that, uh, the New American Standard, the ESV, the English Standard Version. You can just remember the abbreviations ESV, New, NKJV, New King James Version, there you go, and the NIV, New International Version. No, New American Standard. Those are exact equivalencies. There's a different type of translation that would be called a dynamic equivalency translation. That is thought for thought. In other words, it reads better, it flows better. Uh, there's several Bibles that would fall into that. The NIV, which I read out of, I preach out of, I study out of the ESV or the New American Standard because it's exact word for word. But I preach out of, which in the coming days I may change uh, and go to the ESV or the New American Standard. But it's thought for thought. So Bibles that fall into that would be the NIV or a new one that's out is a new living translation. Both those are great to, to read for devotion. Now, there's a paraphrase and I'll need you to understand, a paraphrase is not a translation. 
A paraphrase, paraphrases the English. They don't go back to the original Greek. They don't go back to the original Hebrew. Fact is, the Living Bible was the first paraphrase that came out. It was a man who had young children. All that was out at that time was a King James Version. And they couldn't understand the these and thous and all that other stuff. So he simply started writing letters to them, looking at the King James Version and just explaining it to them. There's, there's several paraphrases. And you need to be careful. Paraphrases are okay to read for devotional, but not for study. And so the Living Bible would be one. Uh, um, the, the, uh, the message would be another one. So the most powerful thing that you can do in your life, the most powerful thing that I do in my life, is just be willing to open His Word up every morning and just read it and apply it to my life and to my relationships around me because... Jesus gave us a promise. He said, if you hear my word, if you accept my word, if you apply it to your life, then there's benefit. There's benefit in your life and there's benefit in, in your relationship. So my prayer is just simple. It would just fall in love with his word. And we'd fall so in love with his word that we'd be willing to read it. Now, this morning we're in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 5 through 11 is what we're going li- to look at as, as we walk through this, this, this book that is just so interesting. Now, there's problems in Corinth. Remember, the church is a wreck. There's all these kind of issues going on. There's all these kind of problems going on in Corinth. This is the second time they've had this issue. They had a man that, that, that uh, got angry at the leaders. He got angry at the pastor. He got angry at Paul. He started saying some things. He tried to divide the church. He tried to hurt the church. And so people were involved. And so Paul, even though Paul was absent, the church began to deal with it. And they got to the point of walking through reconciliation, walking through. And so they got to the point that they put him out from their membership. And so within this process, this man, obviously from Scripture, we don't know what he did. We don't even know his name. But obviously, they, they, well, they, Paul was writing to reinstate him. So this morning, I want to talk to you about this issue about Man, how do you restore somebody? How do you restore somebody within a church? How do you restore someone relationally when they've hurt you, when they've let you down, when they've even sinned against you? What does that look like? What is the process, biblically, that we walk through, that God would have us to walk through, that, that when there is an offense, when there is sin, what, what do we do in that situation? Now, now, Jesus would say it's basically three steps, and we restore them quickly, lovingly, and, and quietly. So... The first thing that Jesus says when we get into that mode is this, is that there's self-examination. I'm just going to walk through you the steps right out of Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. He says, when, you, when someone sins against you, when someone hurts you, the first thing that has to happen is there has to be self-examination in the life, in your life. Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others. Now listen, what Jesus is, is saying... Uh, you, People all the time will say, oh, wait wait a minute, you judge, you can't do that. No, they're taking this verse out of context. We all judge. We need to make judgments. You make judgments every day. You don't send your children into a home where they would be harmful or, or you don't put them in a dangerous situation. So, so if we're honest, we judge. Okay, But what Jesus has said, when you judge either, each other, make sure the same measure that you judge others, you will measure your life by. Make sure the same standard that you use to judge others, the same standard is used in your life. A lot of times, oftentimes, Christians especially get caught in this, they judge people with a measure of standard up here, while their personal life, 
Their measure is way down here. They're excusing away all kinds of sin. They're excusing away all kinds of stuff. And what Jesus is saying, if you're going to judge, if you're going to judge properly, make sure that the same measure that you use for others, you use for yourself. Or in the same way you judge others, watch this, you too will be judged. And with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Here he goes with differing measures. The brother that you're condemning, the brother that you're trashing, the brother that you're judging, he's got a speck. You got the whole board. <laughs> you're judging them to a measure way up here. And you're judging yourself. You're excusing away the whole board in your life when all they have is a speck. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your eye? You ever had someone come and talk to you? Their life is a wreck. And they're trying to tell you everything you're doing wrong and how you need to change and it's all... Do you listen to that type of individual? See, Jesus is coming down to this thing and he says, hey, there's a plank in your eye. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye. So now he gives a, a process. And then you will see clearly the remove the speck from your brother's eye. So when you notice your brother is hurting, when you notice they've rebelled, when you notice when they've walked away, then he says, if you want to help them out, first make sure. If there's a sin that you need to repent of, repent of. If it's something that you're condemning them for that is also in your life, repent of it. Get it out of your life. Before you go to them and before you talk with them. Listen, the only reason for biblical confrontation is for redemption, reconciliation. If you're going to them to make them feel bad, to judge them, to give them a piece of your mind, to hurt them with harsh language... Jesus said, that's the wrong motives. The only reason you go to them, the only reason you try to restore them is for healing and for their help. Second thing is this, when you've self-examined your life and your motives, is gentle confrontation. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. In other words, Jesus said, you who are, who are spiritual, he's not saying you who are perfect, none of us are perfect, right? But he is saying, he is saying this, you who are obedient, you who are walking with the Spirit, you who are going to them using the same measure that you use, you who are going to them to restore them, not harshly, not to judge them, not to embarrass them, Man, restore them, restore them gently. This word restore is a huge word in, in, in Greek in the New Testament. It was basically used in two ways. It was a fishing term. The fishermen fished in their day by nets, so uh, they, would, they would cast out their nets, and at the end of the day, they usually had a lot of tears or holes, and the net was no longer functional, or it was no longer good, or it was no longer productive. So at the end of the day, they would restore their nets and the word communicated that they were taking something that was once functional that no longer is functional making it functional again so they would it was healing they would restore it it was also used as a medical term 
It was used in a way that a physician would take and reset a broken bone, a bone that was once functional and you could use. Now they're resetting it. It's restoring it. Uh, in my life, I've broken my collarbone twice. And uh, I am so thankful that I had a physician both times that was gentle and, and, uh, and understood that whole concept and, and would walk you through the process and tell you ahead of time what they're going to do and how they're going to reset it so that you knew ahead of time. And they took great care in that process. So the picture was is that, that the motive is that when you confront someone, it's for restoration in mind. It's for, for healing in mind. In other words, you don't use angry, harsh, judgmental words and accusations. Uh, Matthew 18, 15, he goes on and he says, but if your brother sins against you, you go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won a brother over. In other words, when someone offends you, they're not the last person you go to. They're the first person you go to. Next time you're talking with a friend, next time you're talking with someone, and man, they are trashing someone and they are letting you know who hurt them, how they hurt, sin in their life, the stuff, the junk in their life. Just simply look at them and says, hey, can I ask you something? How did they respond when you met privately with them? What was their answer? This is what Jesus is talking about. When someone sins against you, when someone hurts you, you just go to them first. And it's a gentle confrontation. If they don't respond, then it's group intervention. Verse 16. But if he listens, if he will not listen, take one or two brothers along so that every matter may be established by a testimony of two or three witnesses. So, in other words, the, you went to him. There were some accusations. It, it, it kind of went south. The conversation didn't w go well. So now there's this group intervention deal to where you take some people with you so that are trusted so that there's testimony of who said what and can keep everything right and you know secular counselors they're talking about this crisis intervention like it's something new and it's something amazing you know Jesus has been talking about it for 2,000 years I mean this isn't something new but they talk about this intervention that it's healing and it's helpful when you get people that are unresponsive and you get them in a room with with some of their loved ones and their loved ones are able to look them in their eyes and say hey we just love you way too much to see you continue down this road we love you way too much not to tell you that if you continue down this road it is not gonna end well for you we love you way too much not to talk about your back to everybody else about how bad it is and how bad you are what's gonna happen we'll talk to you to your face and so he says come to this issue to its crisis intervention to where its group intervention and then if the person doesn't respond uh, oh, then he says there's isolation again for the purpose of redemption for the purpose of restoration Matthew 18 17 but if he refuses to listen, then tell them tell, to tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. How would you treat a pagan? How would you treat a tax collector? You'd still be polite to them. You'd still be cordial. You'd still be friendly. But you probably wouldn't share your deepest, darkest secrets with them. Probably wouldn't invite them to a prayer deal or Bible study or whatever And it. Boy, when you read this, it seems so severe, but remember, it's a, it's a last resort, and it's even for redemption or reconciliation. Now, this is what has taken place in the Corinthian church. They've walked through these processes, this process, and obviously this man has become repentive. And obviously he's moved to the point, 
And now it's time for redemption. Here's what Paul says, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. If anyone has caused, caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you. To some extent, not to put it too severely, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. So there's been isolation going on, okay? Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. He must have asked for it, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, reaffirm your love for him. The reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. If you forgive anyone, also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan may not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. So apparently... There's been transformation in his life. Apparently, he's become repentant or sorrowful for what he's done. Genuine repentance, just so we're all on the same page so we can understand the context of this. Genuine repentance in a person's life has three phases. The first is this. The first is conviction. If there's genuine repentance, repentance is something that you can measure. Repentance is not... Listen, forgiveness is one-sided. Re reconciliation takes two. And we just got to understand this this morning because so many people, they're unwilling to forgive because they've meshed the two and think forgiveness is reconciliation. No, there has to be repentance involved for the, rec for, the, for the relationship to be reconciled. So the first thing is this, is just conviction. Where someone owns their sin, they don't excuse it away, they don't blame, they don't blame how they were raised, they don't blame mama and daddy, they don't bl blame you, they don't blame a spouse, they don't blame the kids, they don't blame society, they don't blame anyone. I mean, they own their sin. In other words, they come to the point and they don't excuse it away, they don't blame it away, they're just totally convicted. And the scripture says there's also contrition. In other words, a contrite heart, what Scripture would say, Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. In other words, this, if there's true conviction, you don't repent with a sneer on your face and you don't repent with a chip on your shoulder. You're not sorry you just got caught and there's tears and there's mad and there's consequences and all this other stuff. You don't repent and you don't say, I'm sorry for the situation, not what I've done. I'm sorry you're upset. I'm sorry for the consequences. True repentance is with a contrite heart to where you come to the point. And you come to the point. It's just admission of sin and acceptance of what I've done. So many people just excuse it away. How I was raised is just how I am. You just got to understand it. And the last phase of repentance is change. Repentance is change. It's a change of mind that leads to a, a change of action. If someone tells you that they've repented and they're sorry and they're continuing to treat you that way, they're continuing the same behavior? That's not repentance. There's a story about this mom and her little girl. The little girl was named Heather, and so she put Heather to bed one night. And you know how little kids are, especially at 10, that they hate to go to bed. And so Heather calls downstairs to her mom and says, Mom, I need some water. And mom says, Heather, I've already given you water. Go to sleep. About 10 minutes later, Heather calls down again and says, Mom, I'm dying. i got to have some water. Just please. Her mom says, Heather, I've told you once. Go to sleep. I've already given you plenty of water. You have enough to drink. Go to sleep. About 10 minutes later, Heather calls down again and says, Mom, please, I've got to have water. If you don't want to get it for me, I'll come down and get it. Just let me have a drink of water. Mom got upset and says, Heather, that's it. 
you call down one more time and ask for water, I will come up there and I will spank you. So there's quietness and about five minutes later, Heather calls down and says, Hey mom, on the way upstairs to spank me, would you bring me a glass of water? You know what, that's not repentance. Repentance is this issue of coming to the point to where there's a change of attitude, there's a change of behavior. Or you know what? We haven't repented. Watch this, 2 Corinthians 7.10. This is huge. We'll look at it as deeper as we walk through this wonderful book. But he says, godly sorrow, in other words, biblical sorrow, biblical forgiveness. Godly sorrow brings what? Repentance. It's not sorry I got caught. It's not sorry for the consequences. It's not sorry you're upset. It's not dysfunctional to where it's blaming you or anyone else for all the stuff. Genuine repentance, godly sorrow, what? Brings repentance, a change of mind that brings a change of actions. Behavior and actions begin to change. That leads to salvation. This says life, life in the relationship. Then he goes on and leaves no regret. The reason a lot of people have great regret because of the stuff of their past They've never repented. They've never come to the point that a change of behavior or change of mind has lead to a change of action. And so they carry this regret, they carry this guilt, they carry this stuff in their life. And they live under that. And then he comes to the point, and he contrasts like Scripture oftentimes does. But he says, but let me talk to you about worldly repentance. Let me talk to you about worldly But worldly sorrow brings death. Death to the relationship. That's why it's hard to move on with someone in a relationship, and some of you may know this. Continually telling you they're sorry and forgive and all this other stuff and their behavior, nothing never changes. And he said, godly sorrow, sorry I got caught, sorry you're upset, sorry you want me to quit doing that, brings death. Judas admitted that he was wrong. Remember when he sold Jesus out and he felt badly for it? But instead of weeping bitterly like Peter, instead of, I mean, instead of repenting, Judas went out and just killed himself because he had too much pride to repent. The story could have been so much different on Judas. Could have been different. And so now Paul is writing to this church and he's saying, man, I hate to tell you this, but this guy's repented. You, you guys got to restore him. And, and let me just tell you, this has a lot of application, not only into the church, but it has a lot, a lot of application into our personal life. Because I, I've watched in relationships, and I've watched an individual repent and change. And the person who was hurt, the person who was harmed, won't forgive them. Won't move on. And so Paul helps them to understand and says, you know what, it's your responsibility to restore. It's your responsibility to forgive. And oh, it's your responsibility to reaffirm your 
love to them. See, the greatest thing about God's forgiveness is this, is he forgets. Fact is, in the Psalms, he says that he goes out to the deepest part of the ocean and dumps our sins over to never look on them again or whatever. The reason he did that, the reason he used that imagery, because in their time it was before the period of enlightenment, they believed that there were parts, the, the deepest parts of the sea were infinity. You couldn't reach, you couldn't touch. So the writer of Psalms says, hey, I go. God goes to the deepest part of the sea and dumps your sins over where it's so deep that you can never, ever touch again. But there are some Christians who are still in misery with their forgiveness because even though someone's repented, even though someone's changed, even though someone in the relationship is doing the best they can, they're unwilling. They're not going to forgive. Oh, they might pretend to, but they got a buoy marker in the sea where your sin is. And they'll go back to it at a moment's notice. And they'll pull it up, and they'll remind you of it. Even though that may not be you anymore. Even though you've had a change of mind that's laid a change of action and you know. I mean, I, I've heard it with some people in conversation. They'll say, oh, oh, her? She got pregnant before she was married 20 years ago. Oh, that person? They got divorced 15 years ago. I can't believe they're teaching Bible study. Oh, that individual? You may not know this. They were once addicted to drugs. They once had an alcohol problem. That person, they embezzled. That person, they lost their job. Even though they lived 10, 15, 20 years, that's not even who they are anymore. The person that lives in misery is the person that has the buoy markers of everybody's sin in the ocean. And when they need to level the field, and they bring it up. And Paul says if the church doesn't learn to forgive, then, then guess what? The same that is true in our personal life. Paul said this, not me, this is just God's word, that if you don't learn to forgive, you will give the individual excessive sorrow. They've repented. They're not that way anymore. They've asked for forgiveness. They're living a different lifestyle. You're not going to forgive them. You're not going to welcome them back in. fact is, you're going to compound their hurt and their pain. with unforgiveness. And you know what unforgiveness does? It destroys you and, and might. It destroys them and it is, un destroys the relationship. Verses 7 and 8. He says, now instead, so here's Paul's instructions, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And I urge you, therefore, this is so important, to reaffirm your love for them. 
when you recognize that the person is hurting and they've changed. You're willing to embrace them. You're willing to put your arm around them. You're willing... You're willing to reaffirm them. In other words, whatever you did with them before, do it again. Just do it again. If not, they're going to live with excessive sorrow. And they will come to the point in the relationship, remember the death part? And they will say, no matter what, no matter what I do, no matter how I do it, you'll never forgive me. So why try? Why try? Death to a relationship, death to a situation. And that's why Paul said, you've got to come to the point. You comfort them when they've changed. And you reaffirm your love to them because... Forgiveness is not an option. It's a commandment. Look at this. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Get rid of the buoy markers. Get rid of all that stuff. Someone's changed. Someone's... The church, shouldn't the church be the place of grace and truth? To where the truth of God is spoken and the word is read and the word is preached and there's great truth. But without grace, it becomes a legalistic, hurtful, dividing organization. And the church should be the place of truth and grace to where we have people that have made a wreck of their life and they've repented and they've changed and because of that they're in places of leadership here and, and God is doing some huge things in, in their life.